wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Hello, and thank you for listening. I'd love to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Bleeding Daylight. That's where we can start a conversation about this and other Bleeding Daylight episodes. He's the author of seven books, a broadcaster heard by millions of people, and a speaker in demand in a number of countries. But where does his story start? We'll find out very soon. You see, I've known today's guest for many years, and it's a real honour to be able to introduce you to him. I know you'll enjoy hearing from him as he takes us on a very personal journey. Sheridan Voice is a writer, speaker and broadcaster. He's written several books and been featured in publications like The Times, Sunday Telegraph, Christianity Today and the devotional Our Daily Bread. Sheridan is a presenter of Pause for Thought on BBC Radio Breakfast. He contributes to media across the UK, US, Europe and Australia and speaks at events around the world. Much of his success has come from the courage to share some of the deepest moments of his life with his various audiences. Today we have the honour of hearing from him on Bleeding Daylight. Sheridan, thank you for your time. (laughs) Or is it me who has the honour of being with you, Rodney? Thank you for that lovely introduction. I appreciate it. Thank you. Your your latest book, Reflect with Sheridan, brings together a number of stories of joy, wonder, meaning, belonging, compassion, calling, seasons, change and hope. And I want to explore some of those stories a little later. But firstly, can you take us back to the insecure teen who searched for belonging through DJing all those years ago? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. You know, I first got interested in the whole nightclub DJ scene. It would have been back, I think, 1984 when I saw a movie called Beat Street. And I think hardly any person knows about Beat Street. But anyway, people who are in the kind of hip hop scene would know about Beat Street. And I saw this as like a 12 year old and my eyes just opened up to what a DJ could do with two turntables and, you know, multiple copies of the same record and cutting and scratching and and backspinning and all of these things. And uh, I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. So uh, over the years, I started collecting records, started entering competitions in 1980. Nine, I went into my first statewide competition, uh, which was in Queensland, and uh, I didn't get a place, but I then went back the following year and I did come runner-up in 1990 and uh, started really, really kind of hoping that this was going to be my future. But that night in 1990 was one of the most loneliest, disappointing nights of my life because I, I had this runner-up role uh, and yet it wasn't doing anything for me inside. It wasn't make, making me feel any better or that life was any more meaningful. Long story short, my mother had uh, an encounter with God and ended up kind of coming fully into faith. She had actually been part of a well-known cult before that for several, several years, even was a missionary in Peru with them. A few months later, my dad came through and I saw the change in them and that had an effect on me. But that's really where it all began. And, you know, to some degree, the, the same desire to be creative with things, to, you know, cut this story with that story and then pause it and then kind of start it again, that's always been a part of my writing. And I think it always goes back to that, you know, those moments in DJ land. 
And there's always been that sense of searching for a deeper meaning. And I guess in those early days, it was searching for significance, but you've continued to to search not only for your own significance, but to see the significance in others as well. Very much so. You know, that word of meaning is just so important to me is uh, life, I don't believe, is a random series of events uh, that have come about from a, a random explosion of molecules that just so happen to bring us into existence. And I really believe that there is deep meaning to be found not only in life, in the world, in creation, but even into our everyday moments. And I don't know when that cottoned on really, but I think probably I was an only child for the first 13 years of my life. And I think that naturally makes you a little bit more introspective because there's nobody else around to talk to or play with. And so I think naturally you you are you are prone to being more introverted. You are prone to being okay in solitude. And that, I think, lends itself to then thinking about things. I was never a good thinker. I'm still not a good thinker. I'm not particularly bright. I have to work very, very hard to get any insights that I get. Uh, But I think it lends itself to thinking about reflecting on conversations, reflecting on experiences. And that's where meaning can be found so often. After you finished those days of of being that club DJ, where did life take you? Right. So I became a Christian in 1990 or might have been 91. I then wasn't sure what to do with my life. Up until then, I would just been doing a day job and that was really to get money to buy records. And after that, I thought, well, I don't think God wants me to keep on going uh, in the nightclub world. I, I, I hoped it was the case for a while. And I kept on kind of living in both worlds for a little while. Um, But then that became clear that I wasn't supposed to. Uh, And then I didn't know what I was supposed to do with my life. I actually prayed for two years to get some sort of guidance as to what I was supposed to do. And at the end of that two years, everything suddenly fell into place within like a week. So I had been having this kind of I'd started to get this idea that maybe God wanted me to do something in radio. I had no interest in radio. To to my mind, it was boring. Um, (laughs) If you're just playing one song after another and talking every third song, I mean, that's got to be the most boring job possible. Why aren't we mixing? Why aren't we doing all sorts of creative things with music? Um, And yet this kind of idea of doing radio just kept on coming back and back and back. At the same time, I had this kind of funny thought that I should get in contact with the Bible College of Queensland, which is now called Brisbane School of Theology, that I should go and do some study there. And I remember this particular period of about two weeks where these two thoughts just kept on bombarding my mind. One, that I should contact the local community Christian radio station, which didn't have a license back then. It's called Family Radio. Now it's called 96.5. But back then it was called Family Radio. I had listened at the time. I wasn't impressed, but I should contact Family Radio Uh, And I should get in contact with the Bible College of Queensland. For two weeks, I had these thoughts. Uh, At the end of the two weeks, I had a letter from somebody I had written to in a radio ministry in Melbourne. I thought maybe he could give me some guidance. And he said, Sheridan, if I were you, I would make contact with Family Radio and the Bible College of Queensland. And so from that point on, I went and did some study. Discovered I kind of had a pastoral leaning um, and pastoral gifts. And so after Bible college and after kind of doing some very early work on radio, excuse me, in Brisbane, learning the tricks, learning the trade, uh, learning the board, then was a youth pastor for 18 months until I burnt out, the quintessential statistic I was. Uh, But it was all part of discovering what my gifts were and weren't. 
And then in uh, mid-1999, I then moved to Perth to a little station you and I both know called 98.5 Sunshine FM and uh, took over mornings there. And that was my kind of beginning of a long, wonderful journey in in radio. I want to pick up on something you said. You, you said you prayed for two years that God would give you guidance. And I hear so many people saying, oh, look, I, I've prayed and, you know, God just doesn't seem to be answering do you think that sometimes the problem when we don't hear from God is that we haven't continued to persist in prayer over something? You know, what I look back on in that moment now, it was a really important lesson for me to learn, is that we are supposed to combine our prayer with action. Now, the words that really struck the accord with me around about this time was some words out of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives, and he says, ask, seek, knock, those who ask will be given, those who seek will find, those who knock, the door will be opened. And that verse hit me right between the eyes um, around about the end of that two years of praying. I had been praying in my room, expecting lights on the wall, you know, some sort of message written in the sky, some sort of voice coming in the night. This is the path, Sheridan, walk thee in it. <laughs> and actually what I was supposed to do was put some action behind my words. I had to make some phone calls. I had to go and knock on some doors, finding out about different radio ministries. And that is what that letter to that guy in Melbourne was all about. I was knocking on the door saying, "What? what's behind the door? And it was as I did that, that then the guidance came. And that is something that I pick up in uh, a recent book, The Making of Us, when I'm doing this pilgrimage with a friend of mine named DJ, walking along and just again, at one of these crossroads in life, not too sure which way am I, am I supposed to go, this way or that way? And a pilgrimage beautifully <laughs> echoes life's journey in that regard. Sometimes you're not too sure, should we take this path or that path? And just in the walking, there is a sense in which God guides you. So that's what I say to people these days. You pray and you act, you knock on the door, you find out what is available. And that is, I think, the, the clearest way that God guides us. After thinking that radio would be really boring, no opportunity to use <laughs> creativity, certainly once you got to 98.5 Sunshine FM, you started to use some creativity in the way that you did radio. What sort of a radio program did you build there? Well, the, the morning show there, uh, I was able to bring kind of a couple of loves together, actually, because by that stage, I had started to realise I actually really like talking to people. I like doing the interviews. And I think it, that kind of spirals back to our word meaning in the fact that when we can have really good conversations, some good meaning can come out. And that's the interesting thing about this idea of conversation is that we might be talking about things that are so different to the listener's experience, but they're not emotionally and they're certainly not spiritually. And so you can say, hang on, I can, I can connect with that, even though the story that I've had, the path I've walked is very different. So being able to then go and do interviews on this morning program was just fabulous. And I was getting up at like three o'clock in the morning to go into the station to record an interview with somebody in the States or something because of the time difference. I was that hungry to make this work. And then the station allowed me to bring in some talkback elements. And so let's have some live calls. Uh, we had to get some machinery and, you know, some some technology and to delay things so that uh, we weren't going to be putting bad things to air. There was going to be an opportunity to dump the call if something went wrong. I really appreciated the fact that, you know, we were able to go and do that. So bringing the talk elements in. I was able to produce some spots during that time. 
that ended up getting played on stations all around Australia. Just some little spots that got people thinking about faith and thinking about whether this was all there was to life. And just little things like that, I think. Uh, I, I look back on those years of being so formative in just trying out a whole bunch of things, bringing in some regular guests, bringing in talk back, talking to some fascinating people. Yeah, very good years, those five years I had there. And I've mentioned the the number of books that you have written, and, and we are going to explore those in, in a little while, but were you starting that writing habit at that stage as you were doing this? Were you starting to, to jot things down, or did that come later? Actually, it started in that same period of five years. So it was the year 2000 that I wrote my first article for a magazine called A Live Magazine, and it was Funnily enough, it was actually one of the interviews that I had done. Oh, now help me out here. Uh, used to be a basketballer, Ricky. What was his last name? Oh. Uh, Ricky Grace. Ricky Grace. I'd done an interview with him because wasn't it the first year that basketball had been uh, incorporated into the Olympics? And so I'd done an interview uh, with him and then written up this article about, you know, Christians, basketball, Olympics and things like that. Uh, And then that moved later on. I was able to get a column with a live magazine, started writing for some other publications. I started writing my, at that time, my very first book, which to this day has never been published. And I say to wannabe writers all the time, I say, look, you might have a project that you spend many, 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 many hours on, and it may not get published, but that might be your apprenticeship. So I don't know. I think I would have spent part-time a couple of years of Saturday mornings and Thursday afternoons or something on this on this book, which has never been published, but really it did teach me uh, the basics of writing. And then in 2005, I had my first published book come out called Unseen Footprints, And that was actually just when I'd left Sunshine and had more time to write full-time. So, yeah, that was the beginning of the writing. And that was an award-winning book. Maybe you can tell us a little about it. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm grateful that it caught the imagination of, uh, of the panel of the Australian Christian Literature Society at the time. I think what had happened is up until then, Christian books had been very much targeted at church people and very much about Christian problems and Christian things, Christian interests. And with Unseen Footprints, I was trying to do, in fact, what what really uh, Sunshine FM had been wanting to do and trying to do for you know a couple of decades by that stage before then, which was how do we reach the spiritually interested secular Australian? How do we do that? And Unseen Footprints was really trying to do that in print. It was trying to reach the Oprah-watching Deepak Chopra reading crowd, uh, the everyday New Ager, I guess I would call them, uh, of whom there are many in Australia, many more than here in the UK where I am now. And the idea was just to try and kind of uh, open up a conversation. And so they saw that, they caught the vision of that, and then uh, it won the award in 2006. And then it got published here in the UK in 2007. And uh, it's actually gone to another publisher since. And Oh, gosh, I think with all of the different versions, I think there's something like 80,000 copies out there now, um, which none of my other books have reached. Uh, But it's nice to see that it still has a life beyond its first publication. And that was all about, as the book says, encountering the divine along the journey of life. And really calling us out to say, you know, those moments that you, you might have just missed something or there's something going on, but you're not quite sure what it is. Perhaps it could be God. 
Yeah, so things like beauty, natural beauty, when, you know, you're sitting there, you're watching the sunset, and there is something not just pretty about it, but awe-inspiring about it. Uh, in the book, I talk about an experience I have up in, up in Scotland where looking out the window of a hotel, suddenly see there's an end of a rainbow right there in front of us, uh, resting on the water outside. And I just, you know, blurt out, my goodness, look at that. And everybody else in the hotel looked around at that. And suddenly everybody was rushing upstairs to get their cameras, then rushing outside to try and capture it. Um, now, that's beyond just something nice and pretty. There is something awe-inspiring. We're all quiet and silent when that experience happened. I was standing next to a Jewish couple, and I cheekily said, uh, you know, a reference from Genesis about, you know, never will I destroy the world by flood. And they looked at me with a smile on their face, and we got talking about spiritual things, you know? It's just like, when we have experiences of natural beauty like that, are we not perhaps seeing something more? What about the inner longings that we have for um, a world without pain, a world without death? As Peter Berger, the great sociologist, said, you know, the big no that comes out of us when we lose a loved one, when we, when we see other people lose loved ones, there is a, there's a huge no that just yells inside us. No, this should not be the case. Where does that come from? He would suggest it's actually an echo of us being made for a world that doesn't have pain, doesn't have death. And that, of course, is what the Christian vision of creation and the future is all about. So that's what really Unseen Footprints was trying to tap into is some of those human experiences that point to something greater and be something else transcendent beyond us. So at the same time, of course, you're pioneering a new program at a Sydney radio station, and that's just growing. You're getting more opportunity to talk to a range of people and to do those things that you love. Yeah, I think the experience at Sunshine just said, I want to do this more. Let's get, a, let's get rid of the music and let's just have a complete talk show. And uh, Sunshine wasn't the, the place to do that, and rightly so. But, you know, I'd been kind of dreaming for this, this kind of program, I think, ever since really ever since the late 90s when I'd been sitting by the Brisbane River imagining what this new little radio career might be. And it had been a kind of in the mind, my mind, it had been this program where it would be live talk back, it would be live interviews, maybe even some live music, and we would have it syndicated to other cities so we could have like a big national conversation. And in 2006, that became a reality in a show called Open House. Uh, which for a period of time, actually after I finished hosting it, was uh, was aired in, in Perth. That was an amazing dream come true um, because, yeah, then we had two hours and it became three hours on a Sunday night. Roughly probably somewhere around 100,000 listeners were know that the two of the eight stations that we were on in the eight cities had about 70,000 between them. So kind of uh, a, a small conservative guesstimate would have added another 20 or 30 with the other stations. And we had all sorts of folks listening, we had Muslims listening, Scientologists, Hindus. We had uh, those kind of everyday New Age folks that I was always interested in connecting with. They were listening, as well as, of course, Christians of all varieties. And um, yeah, it was another you know, amazing five years hosting that. And I was very, very sad to leave it. So all the way along, you're actually talking about various people's experiences. You're engaging people through radio. You had written this uh, book, Unseen Footprints, where you're talking about the way that we actually discover God just along the everyday pathway of life. Uh, when did you start to turn towards writing a book that was so deeply personal 
like resurrection year. Yeah. Well, see, here's the here's here's the paradoxical nature about life and about walking with God as you walk through life, is that I had had this ten year dream come to fruition, the dream of the open house program. And during that time, and kind of overlapping with it, was another 10-year dream that my wife and I both had, which was to have a family, uh, which is what most, not most, but yeah, no, I think statistically that would be right. Most couples would dream of uh, starting a family at some some stage. I think it's a small number that don't really want to go and have a family from the beginning. And we tried everything during that 10 years to to start our family. We tried IVF. Uh, we tried healing prayer numerous times. We were in New South Wales by that stage. We did eight months of assessment for the local adoption program. And then we waited for two years after that for the phone call to come for our little boy or girl to be picked up. The phone call never came. Went and did even more IVF. And at the end of that 10-year journey, and this was 2010 by that stage, we had had uh, a phone call from the IVF clinic telling us news that we had given up wanting to hear and expecting to hear, ever dreaming that we would hear. And that was that we were pregnant and our family and our friends just erupted in Thanksgiving because this is, this was an 11th hour answer to a prayer that they'd been praying for us for a decade. And then on Christmas Eve of 2010, we had a phone call from the clinic saying, sorry, you're not. And with that, it all came crashing down. And I did not want to write about that experience. That was so far off my radar. I was wanting to write more books like Unseen Footprints. I did not want to go delving into our own personal story. And uh, it, it hadn't even crossed my mind. It was actually once we came here to the UK, and we came here, quick story, because Marin, my wife, the only thing that she'd wanted to do with her life, apart from become a mum, was to live and work overseas, take the opportunity, use the freedom that we would have that folks with kids and with schooling programs and everything else that kind of really naturally weds you to a space, we wouldn't have that. So why don't we use this opportunity and go and live and work overseas somewhere? And so when a little university called the Oxford University came knocking and offered her a job, we saw that as God's provision for her. And so we ended up moving to the UK in June of 2011. Uh, and it was through a conversation with uh, Adrian Plass, who some of our listeners might know, a very well-known British author, famous for a little book called The Sacred Diary of Adrian Plass, age 37 and three quarters, which he uh, reminds people is now about 30 years out of date, <laughs> but continues to sell very well. And he, one day, as we were walking along telling him the story, he uh, one night just said, you know what, I think you should be telling this story in a book. And ultimately, I didn't like the idea, really didn't think that Merrin was going to be up for it. And anyway, that became a book called Resurrection Year. And that re references our 12 months in the UK where we thought, we're going to have a resurrection year. We're going to start again, press reset, uh, and get our lives back on track again. And of course, that year has continued, and I want to talk about that in a moment. That year has just gone on and on. They're living in the UK. <laughs> Indeed. But I guess the, the hallmarks of that book is that it is not just a, a memoir that sometimes we would expect where it glosses over things, but you go into some of the, the deep feelings that you experienced and that Merrin experienced during that time. It, it's deeply personal, and at times in reading it, we feel, am I encroaching too far into their personal life. But obviously, the words that you had written there 
resonated deeply with people. And I know you got some amazing feedback of people who had experienced their own resurrection year, not necessarily through childlessness, but through a range of things happening in their lives. That was the real discovery from writing Resurrection Year, talking about our story of 10 years in the wilderness of infertility, as I think I say in the book, that in talking about that story, somehow it connected with people who had never had that experience at all, and it connected with people who were single and who wanted to be married, and it connected with people who had had a career and then lost it or had always wanted a particular career, never got it, wanted to be artists, all sorts of things, lost children, um, lost marriages, and it had connected with them as well. It's just like, how does this work? And I think there is something in which when you share your story honestly and openly, and you don't want to do it gratuitously, so you want to share only as much as you think is actually going to be beneficial for the reader, when you do that, Somehow, again, the emotional and spiritual aspects of that story resonate at a human level, even if it doesn't on a particular level. You haven't had the same experience. So, yeah, I mean, that book came out in 2013. Uh, so, it's, what, seven years now. And I still will get reader emails and letters and voicemails from people giving me their stories from that. And something else strange has happened with that, Rodney, as well. That book opened up, you know, none of my books are bestsellers. None, none of them have gone on to, you know, be huge sellers and reach these, you know, bestselling lists or anything like that. What Resurrection Year has done, though, is it opened up doors for me right around the world. And so I've gone and spoken on the Resurrection Year message throughout Europe, throughout the United States and Australia, of course, right throughout the UK, South Africa. And something strange has started to happen in the last few years. And I'll give you an experience. I'll give you three stories. So Perth, speaking at Riverview Church, any Perth people listening will know Riverview Church, largest church in Perth, one of the largest in Australia. Speaking there, after the evening service, a guy comes up and he says, I haven't been to church in years, 26 years, in fact. And I didn't want to go to church. I had no interest in going to church. In fact, all this week, though, I had this strange feeling I should get to a church. And so I Googled church, and this was the first thing that came up. And then I came along, and everything you've shared tonight is exactly what I needed to hear. I've gone through my own broken dreams. Uh, I've lost a marriage. I've lost a business. It's like it's like I was meant to be here. <laughs> I said, I believe you were meant to be here. I think God loves you. I think he wants you to, to become his child. Got him connected with the pastoral team, got him a Bible and everything else. Immediately after him, a couple walked up and the guy says, I haven't been to church in years. <laughs> and the girl says, I've never been to church. But all this week, we had this strange feeling we should get to a church service. We did a Google search. This was the first church that came up. And everything you've shared tonight is exactly what we needed to hear. It's almost like we were meant to be here. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I think you were meant to be here. A few months later, I'm speaking at a church in uh, up in the north of England. Uh, anybody who remembers David Watson and some of the choruses that he wrote, this was David Watson's old church. It's called the Belfry, or the long name is St. Michael the Belfry Church. And speaking there in the evening service, this guy comes up to me afterwards. He says, I don't go to church. I've never been to this church. But I was just walking past and something drew me in. And everything you've shared tonight is exactly what I needed to hear. Because tonight I was going to take my life. I was going to get blind drunk. 
I was going to walk over and I was going to jump off that bridge just down the road there. But now I'm not going to anymore because after what I've heard, I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. I'm now a child of God. (laughs) Now, that little experience has seemed to multiply. It happened when I returned to Perth and spoke at Riverview Church, happened again. It happened when I was speaking uh, over in the States where just somebody will come. They say, I just had this strange feeling that I had to come. Now, you know what? We can't orchestrate that. That's the grace of God. But there seems to have been something in which Adrian Plass was just so right on the money all those years ago that in telling this story uh, openly and with as much honesty as we could, and yet there still being a very clear ringing message there that this is all meaningless if there still isn't a good and loving God in the background, uh, that that has turned out to be you know a message that many people have needed. And I think a big part of that message has been that you were very honest about the wrestle that both you and Merrin had with God along the way. Yep. That's so often we think in church, well, no, no, we, we can't upset the big guy. We, we can't wrestle <laughs> with him. We, we can't sort of tell him, no, I don't think you know what you're doing. And yet in those difficult times, you were having some difficult conversations with God, realising he's big enough to take it. Very much so. Um, there's two ways that painful experiences like this can take your spiritual life in a negative way. One is you shake your fist at God, get all angry, and then you kind of go cold. And Merrin would say that's what she did. The other way is to kind of go, well, God's good and perfect and powerful and everything, so it can't be uh, he can't be at fault. It must be me. And so you start pointing fingers at yourself, and that's the way I went. And so when we were going through those 10 years of infertility, it was just like, well, Sheridan, if you just had more faith, maybe that, you know, you would be able to give your wife what she desperately wanted. If you were, if you were uh, more spirit-filled, you know, whatever it might be, maybe then you would have breakthrough in this area. Um, and for Marin, you know, her, her relationship with God just went cold for a few years. And, you know, it took a few years then to get it warming back up again. And you know what? Again, this is what I've learned. You look back through scripture and you will find people being incredibly open and honest with God. The Psalms are full of people being very open. Where are you, God? You know, how long are we going to wait until you come through? We're waiting. We're waiting. Uh, Habakkuk, Jeremiah basically saying, come on, you've tricked us. Why don't you get on with this? Job. Job's the most fascinating book because all the religious people, all the friends around him, that are saying, well, look, you know, basically doing a Sheridan to some degree, uh, look, you know, good's all, God's all good and powerful. So, you know, we can all agree that if something bad is going on in your life, well, it must be your fault, Job. What was the secret sin you had? What was the thing that you did? One of them even suggests that the chi- children, who of course all die in the first chapter, uh, that they died because they had done some sort of secret sin as well. I mean, this is horrendous horrendous advice to be giving a person in pain. And yet at the end of the book, who's the one who gets praised? Even though he's the one that is railed against God, shaked his fist, gotten so arrogant to say, I summons God the Almighty into the courtroom and I want him to declare his case and I'll declare my case and somebody else can adjudicate between us. (laughs) This is arrogant, arrogant stuff. And yet he, Job, is the one who gets praised by God in the end. Uh, and to the other guys, they say, he says, you have not spoken right of me. Now, there's got to be something in that for us, that there is space for us to, I still, you know, still, 
I still think we should do it with reverence, but there's a place for honesty and saying, God, I feel like you've just abandoned us. Gosh, haven't we heard those words before? I think they were spoken on a cross somewhere 2,000 years ago. I want to come to your latest book, Reflect with Sheridan, because it is packed full of a range of stories, but it's meant to be the sort of book that you can sit down and, and read through, but also take in the images. And again, this reflects back to your creativity and, and wanting to bring together various areas of creativity. And and I believe they're not quite your photos, even though you're a keen photographer. <laughs> That's right. But there, there's some great imagery in there and some great stories. How did this book come about? You know, I was speaking to a publisher and, and even then there's a story there. When I first came to the UK, every door shut for me. I knew it was going to happen, but it was really hard to walk through. And, you know, the door to publishing had shut. You know, publishers here were turning me down saying, who's Sheridan Voisey? Nobody's going to buy a book from somebody they don't know about. Um, doors were open to Christian radio over here, but it wasn't really a path I felt I should take. It was a different form of Christian radio to what has been pioneered in Australia. Uh, doors to the BBC were certainly well and truly closed. Um, speaking opportunities, conferences, churches, and all of that was gone. So for a few years, I didn't know who I was or what I was all about. Uh, and that was explored in a book called The Making of Us. But then I ended up finally being able to get some books published. And then I was sitting actually uh, with the general manager of a publisher who had originally, back in 2011, turned me down and um, we're, we're interested in doing something again. And we were talking about actually a, another book idea altogether that she had, which was uh, based on somebody called St. Cuthbert, who is a, a well-loved saint here. And I talk about him a little bit in The Making of Us and just how important he is really to, to Christian life, not just here in the UK, but even you could say even in Australia in a sense, uh, one of a group of missionaries that really saw the gospel take root here in the United Kingdom in the 7th century. And as a result of that spread from, from here around the world. It's the last five minutes of that conversation. We're talking about this project. And I said, you know, I've got all these scripts that I've done on Radio 2 which is the uh, national radio network over here. And, you know, they're Christian thoughts and reflections written for a secular audience. They're written to connect with a secular listener. And I wonder whether there's something in that. And <laughs> would you believe it, the other project uh, so far hasn't gone forward, but um, but this one was able to go ahead straight away. So that's really where it came about. And so there's 70 stories in nine themes. And like you said, you know, with photography on every page, which is lovely. And it's a gift book in many ways. And it's uh, both for kind of some inspiration for the person of faith, but it's also, I'm hoping, a gift that uh, you might be able to give to your friends and your family members, your colleagues, as an inspirational gift. It's not too preachy. Uh, in fact, it's gone through BBC Radio 2 producers to make sure it's not preachy, and they'll let you know when it's preachy, I can tell you. Uh, so it's kind of stripped back all that preachiness, um, but hopefully it's still something that kind of gets, gets you inspired to think about things beyond just the everyday so you've had those opportunities to share some of these stories on the BBC. Tell us, how did that actually open up for you? How did you start getting the opportunity to to share some of these little stories that you have written with this huge audience that the BBC offers you? Yeah, so the radio landscape in the United Kingdom is fascinating. Um, you have 
more than maybe about two thirds of the population listening to what really is about four national networks. And then you've got commercial networks and things as well, but a lot of national networks over here in the UK. Uh, Radio 4 is actually the oldest network, it's the equivalent of Radio National in Australia. And yet it has something like 10 or 11 million listeners every week. It's very, very popular. They started off something called Thought for the Day way back when, where the local minister would come in and give a little, you know, a little homily. Uh, That has progressed now to being something that is multi-faith. But then Radio 2 came along in, oh, I think maybe the 50s or 60s. um, And that's kind of the lighter entertainment kind of uh, programming. Uh, and it is a huge powerhouse of a station. It's like 14 million listeners every week and 11 of them in breakfast. And their version of that is called Pause for Thought. And so I was recommended to the producers from two or three different different people, and it took four years, really, ultimately, for me to get an email from one of the producers saying, hey, do you want to send us a, a script and we could explore it? Um, and I started off in the earlier shift, uh, so I would – wake up at 3.30 in the morning, uh, get a hire. Well, you know, I'd picked up a hire car the day before, drive down to London, uh, get into London by quarter past five, ready to go on air at a quarter to six, go and speak for literally two and a half minutes, and then say goodbye to both the presenter and the producers, swipe myself out downstairs and drive all the way back to Oxford. <laughs> and I did that for a few years. And then finally they they said, okay, you can come and Joined the, uh, the the big boys table uh, at the breakfast show, and so now I uh, I get to communicate to three times the audience. So there's I think about nine million listeners or something like that when I'm on. Um, that's how that came about. Um, it's through a lot of waiting and some very kind people who put me forward, and then kind of being ready. You know, you 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 do your apprenticeship, and then you kind of get put yourself in a position where those kind of calls can come to you. I'm certainly hoping that you have the book at hand, and maybe you can. Read us just one or two of those stories. Sure. Well, what are you in the mood for, Rodney? Are you in the mood for a bit of joy, a little bit of wonder, belonging, compassion? Look, I I will let it be your pick, (laughs) which I know makes it difficult for you, but I'd I'd love to hear just what's on your mind from, from the selection of stories that you have there. Okay. Let me give you one that's fairly early in the book, and it's called Glimpses of Something Greater. And so what happens is uh, it used to be that the producers would give you a topic and then you'd have to write on a topic. And now that's not the case with the show that I'm doing now. But this was one of those things where I think they'd given me the topic of happiness. It's like, okay, what can I do on that? And this is where I went. My wife and I once spent Christmas on the Isle of Mull off the west coast of Scotland. Snow-capped mountains, rich blue sky, and a landscape of vivid yellows and browns made it an enchanting place for us. One moment we drove through snowstorms. The next, we watched the sun pierce the clouds and flood the misty valley with amber light. Sitting in the conservatory of our holiday shack, we saw double rainbows from end to end. Mull soon felt like a place of fairy tales. Natural beauty like this makes me happy. So do long train rides, secondhand bookshops and cosy English pubs on rainy days. An engaging conversation and the giggles of a child make me happy as does the memory of an elderly couple I used to see at my local swimming pool. In a beautiful act of devotion, each morning the husband would wait patiently to help his frail wife hobble to the change rooms after her therapy session. The music of New Order and Florence and the Machine makes me happy. So does a good dim sum restaurant, crepes with sugar and lemon and cherries dipped in dark chocolate. To paraphrase Benjamin Franklin, 
Chocolate is proof enough that God exists and wants us to be happy. The world is full of delightful things. In light of all this then, I find it intriguing that scripture has more to say about joy than it does happiness. Maybe there's a reason for that. All those things that make me happy are momentary. The chocolate dib cherries are soon gone. After three and a half minutes, the song is over. Mull's rainbows fade as quickly as they appear. In contrast, Christian joy is said to be enduring. It's given to us by the Spirit of Christ who comes to live within us when we ask. That makes it a joy that can be experienced even in unhappy times. Still, my Bible says that every good and perfect gift is from God too, including ephemeral things like sunshine, food, and happiness. God made the cherry. God gave humans the ability to make chocolate. The combination of the two is divine, however fleeting the eating experience is. So, savour today's moments of happiness. The tastes, the conversations, the sunlit valleys. I believe there are momentary glimpses of a greater joy available to us. Wonderful. And in a few words, you've managed to evoke happiness in a lot of us, I'm sure, as we listen and we start to imagine those things that bring happiness for all of us and then into that deeper search for that thing called joy. Maybe maybe one more story for us, Sheridan. <laughs> well, you know what? That's kind of spiralled back to our conversation in many ways. As I was reading it out, I was thinking it's connected in with some of the things we've been talking about. Maybe this one will too. This is called Scent of the Hidden Flower. And this will be a great nod to uh, our Australian listener. Located in the Tasman Sea, Lord Howe Island is a paradise of white sands and subtropical rainforests. Shaped like a crescent, with beaches on one side and a lagoon on the other, its crystal waters teem with life. Holidaying there once, I spent a morning swimming with playful turtles and shimmering spangled emperors, while moonrass hovered nearby, their bodies flickering like billboards. It was an experience I'd never forget. Wading waist down in the lagoon that afternoon, something caught my eye. Looking down, I found a mini reef of multicoloured corals, with a world of beautiful creatures scuttling around and through them. Yellow-tailed elegants rushed here and there, along with butterfly fish with vibrant black and yellow stripes, and Nemo-style clownfish with their big bulging eyes. I towered like a giant over this thriving kingdom, but the inhabitants didn't mind. When I slid a hand into the water, three butterfly fish came up to greet me. The sand, the water, the aquarium at my feet. It was so overwhelmingly beautiful. And it made me pause in reverence. C.S. Lewis described natural beauty like this as the scent of a flower we haven't yet found. In other words, beauty like this points to a source. When the Jewish prophet Ezekiel encountered God, he wasn't shown a bearded man in white clothes. Instead, he saw a brilliant blue throne seating someone as radiant as fire with colours exploding all around him. 600 years later, John the Apostle saw something similar a being sparkling like precious stones surrounded by a radiant rainbow. In the Christian scriptures, God isn't revealed only as good and powerful, but beautiful. And the Psalms, describing God as wearing creation like a coat, well, maybe we've found the hidden flower, the source of the world's beauty. I'll never forget that day on Lord Howe Island. And if C.S. Lewis was right, my reverence was appropriate. Because I wasn't just encountering nature in that lagoon. I was glimpsing the very beauty of God. I know that people listening will have caught just a a glimpse of 
your writing style, your communication style. And I'm sure that many will be searching you out to try and find your books and to, to read through those ones that are very personal, as we've mentioned, but also wonderful books like that one, your latest, Reflect with Sheridan. If people are trying to track you down, where's the easiest place for them to find you? Yeah, well... Funnily enough, there's not many Sheridan Voises in the world. So if you just simply Google Sheridan Voise, <laughs> you will find me. But it's SheridanVoise.com is the website. Voise is V for Victory, O-Y, S for Sam, E-Y, SheridanVoise.com. And I will certainly put links to that website in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so people can jump on there and find that. But Sheridan, it has been a delight to chat to you. We could keep talking for hours because <laughs> there's just so much more to explore. But I just wanted to get that brief look into your life, some of your stories, and hopefully to get a few people to be reading some of the things that you've written, some of the things that you've communicated over the years. And I'm sure that they'll be blessed for that. But thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks, Rodney. Always enjoyable talking to you, mate. And I really appreciate the insight you've given into these questions. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.